Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our Countercultural Sermon Series. Countercultural is a study of the Beatitudes and explores our call to be different. We hope you find this podcast meaningful. We'd love to hear how God is touching people's lives. Just go to our website at www.valleybrook.cc, select Contact Us, and send us an email. Good morning. As we gather here this morning, you know, I'm very aware of those who are in the path of Hurricane Irma. And so I know we have friends and family and, and uh, have brothers and sisters in Christ there. And, and we also know that people have been already impacted. So just uh, at the beginning of this message, will we just bow our heads and pray? Father, as we gather in this place, Lord, we know that you are the God who controls the wind and the waves. And Lord, we know that uh, your ways are not our ways, but Lord, we ask, Lord, we ask that you would bring safety to those who are in harm's way. Lord, we pray for those who have, uh, have, who have escaped and who are worried about their property. Lord, we pray for peace for them. Lord, we pray for protection for all people. Lord, we pray for those who have already experienced devastation from this hurricane or the previous one, and we pray that you would be with them and comfort them as they rebuild. Lord, we pray that you would do something amazing and that we would be able to sit back and say, wow, look at what you did. So Lord, we pray for comfort for those in the storm. And Lord, we pray that the body of Christ will rally to help after the storm passes, that we will be there to help and support and do whatever it takes to help people in their time of need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, over the past weeks with Hurricane Harvey and now with Hurricane Irma, we have seen people respond in ways to help. People to begin to do selfless things, giving of their time, giving of their talent, giving of their treasure, giving of their touch, making sure that folks can help find solace and comfort and rebuild after the storm. And as I've watched what's happened over the past couple of weeks, one of, the, one of those groups of people that has stuck out to me was a group called Convoy of Hope. You, you may have seen uh, Vice President Pence was there and he shared words of encouragement after Hurricane Harvey with people in Victoria, Texas. And they were distributing food and water and hygiene kits after that hurricane. And, and you know, when I think about it, you know, there are people who, whose job it is to run into the storm and, and bring comfort and, and solace, and, and that's their job, and, and that's how they make their living. But what I watched and what I saw on the news and what we'll see after this storm passes is that there will be people who will run in to help out of the goodness of their heart. They'll, they'll set aside work. They'll, they'll take vacation. They will go there to be the hands and the heart of Jesus. And I realized that, you know, that, that goes against really sort of the culture we live in that says, it's all about me. It's me. It's me. It's me. Because in that moment, they're saying, it's not about me. I'm going to do whatever I can do to help. It's about me going and helping. And, and you know, I became curious about Convoy of Hope because what I knew about them was very little. And so as I researched about Convoy of Hope, what I realized is that Convoy of Hope sprang out of tragedy, a, a huge family tragedy. In 1969, Harold Donaldson was killed by a, a drunk driver and his wife was severely injured. And so all of the Donaldson kids 
were plunged into poverty. And what happened next to them was amazing because different families throughout the community took the kids in for however long it took to help restore their family. And eventually the family was restored. And, and Hal Donison, uh, the son of uh, Harold, was tremendously impacted by this, along with his sister and his brothers. And it made such an impact on his life. He, he wondered what he could do. And, and one day he had the opportunity to, to meet Mother Teresa. And in that encounter with Mother Teresa, she said something that really helped him figure out how to redeem that tragedy that almost completely devastated their family. Because, you know, in many instances it would. It would have destroyed a family. But out of that tragedy and out of that encounter, something good happened. He, he remembers Mother Teresa asking him, what are you doing to help the poor and the suffering? And he said, I'm not doing anything. And her response was, everybody can do something. Everybody can do something. And, and so... After that conversation, he went back to his brothers and his sisters and said, we got to do something to help the poor and the suffering. And so they loaded up a pickup truck and, and they went out to their neighborhood in California, loaded up with food and things to help and they began to help people. And that was in the mid-90s and they've never looked back. Uh, to date, before Hurricane Harvey, to date they had helped 80 million people. I think about that, you know, they are doing what it takes to make a difference in people. And, and yes, they're, they're reaching out with, with food and clothing and water and hygiene kits, but they're not just doing that because this is a Christian organization and they're unashamedly followers of Jesus. And not only do they share materially, they share spiritually. They share the good news of Jesus Christ. And people come to faith because followers of Jesus are willing to set aside their own life to come and help those in need. Makes me wonder. They're being different. How are we being different because of Christ in our life? They're being different because they're followers of Jesus Christ. How are we being different? And as I, as I say that, I realize that there are tons of Christian organizations that do things like that. I know that there are tons of, of individual congregations that will respond in the time of need. And, and there are individual Christ followers. And these folks are making a difference. Not because they're paid to do it, but because of Jesus in their lives. Today we're beginning this series, a series that we call Countercultural. And what I'm going to ask each one of you to do is to participate in the study. And I realize that that ask in itself is countercultural. I'm going to ask you to fully participate in three ways. And you're already doing one of them. You're here. You know, for this Sunday and the next nine Sundays, I'm going to ask you to be here to hear the message and Seek what God's trying to say to you and instruct you to do with your life. And I realize that being here is countercultural. You know, you're making Sunday a priority to spend time with God, and that goes against our me first culture. The next thing I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to grab one of the countercultural books because in that book, you're going to be challenged every day to, to read some of God's word, to let God speak to you through the power of his spirit and the power of his word. And not just read it, but engage with it and ask yourself some questions about it. And then not just let it go in your head, but let it 
come out of your life and how you're going to live it out. Now, look, that's countercultural because you know what? A lot of us would just like to sit in front of the TV and watch SportsCenter. Some of us would just like to, to go and surf the internet. Some of us would just like to troll other people on Facebook. Some of us would just like to go and read a novel or take a nap. But what I'm asking you to do is to give God time in your day to read his word and let him impact. And the third thing I'm going to ask you to do is this. In the midst of your life, and you probably would tell me, you know, Clark, I have a busy life. Yes, we could all probably say that. I'm going to ask you to, to join a life group. Life groups, as I said earlier, are small groups of people who gather together to build community and study God's word. I'm going to ask you to set aside that some time to do that each week. Uh, you know, you can go out and you can join a life group at our life group table. You can uh, go online to our website and you can join a life group. I'm going to ask you to do that. And I realize that that is countercultural because I'm asking you to open your lives and open your heart to other people and let them in and to build some relationships with people that maybe you don't even know yet and to set aside some time again to interact with other followers of Jesus about God's word. And I realize that's all countercultural. Let me say something about being countercultural. Counter, being countercultural isn't an anti this thing or an anti that thing. It's not a fad. It's not being rebellious. It's not a generational thing. Here's the deal being countercultural is a Jesus thing. It's a Jesus thing. Every believer of Jesus is called to follow Jesus, and the world doesn't follow Jesus, and so that's countercultural. Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world, and so his sons and daughters, uh, as his sons and daughters, we're part of his kingdom. And so we're not supposed to conform to the ways of the world, but to the ways of God. Being countercultural is not being different for different sake. It's being like Jesus. And when you read scripture, you will see that Jesus calls us to be different. That's the first point that I want to make today. It's just the word different. If you're following along in your outline, you can write it down there. You know, in the book of Matthew, uh, chapters uh, 5, 6, and 7, you will find Jesus' first sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the great scholar and theologian John Stott writes this, that in the Sermon of the Mount, you find the theme for that sermon in verse 8 of chapter 6. And it says this, do not be like them. And if you read through the Sermon of the Mount, you'll see that is echoed over and over. As followers of Christ, we're not supposed to be like those who do not believe in him. We're supposed to be like Jesus. Basically, he's saying, listen, uh, I don't want you to be like folks who don't believe in me. I want you to be different. I want you to believe in me, and I want you to follow me and do what I say. And John Stott writes this. He says, the essential theme of the entire Bible from beginning to end is that God's historical purpose is to call out a people for himself, that that people is to be a holy people set apart from the world to belong to him and to obey him. And that its vocation is to be true to its identity. And that is to be holy or different in all of its outlook and behavior. Now that's talking corporately, but individually we're supposed to be holy or different 
in our outlook or behavior. Does that make sense? Yeah. God's calling and purpose for your life is for you to be a faithful son, to be a faithful daughter with whom God wants to be in relationship with. As his faithful sons and daughters, then we'll be holy, we'll be set apart, we'll be different than the rest of the world. To not follow the ways of the world, but to follow the ways of God. So we're supposed to see the world through God's eyes. And we're supposed to pattern our life after the life of Jesus. We are not to be like the worldly culture that surrounds us and quite frankly inundates us with a me first philosophy. We're supposed to live in a world and be people who follow Jesus and reflect his love and goodness to everyone. And Jesus taught this over and over again about how we're supposed to be in the world and not of the world. And in, and in one point, he even talks about us that we would not be of the world even as he is not of the world. So if we're gonna follow him while we live in this world, we're gonna seek to be like him. And by the way, this countercultural theme doesn't just happen with Jesus. It runs through the entire Bible. And it takes on a specific call to action for all of us who believe in Jesus. It's a call to live differently because we've been saved by Jesus and because we belong to God. So I want to remind you uh, of what Jesus taught. And, and here's the first thing that he teaches in over and over in the Gospels. Put God first. Put God first. In Matthew chapter 6, he says this. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He's saying put everything of God first in your lives. Jesus was talking about loving God with all of our being, with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our souls, with all of our strength. It's a command that, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recorded Jesus saying. And, and in it, we find the heart of the Old Testament law where we see in the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, put me first. Put me first. He was saying, love me above all others. Jesus knew this. He was taught this as a young boy growing up in a Hebrew family. And he was also familiar with the words of Deuteronomy 6, 5, which he actually quotes and he calls the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. In other words, put God first in every area of your life. Trust God to take care of all of the rest of your life when you put God first. That's countercultural. That's not what the world teaches us to do. That's not how the world tells us to live. It tells us to put me first and to seek after my will and my way and to do it unapologetically. But Jesus said, put God first. Follow God's will and God's way. Ultimately, God wants us to trust in him knowing that he knows what is best for us. But this countercultural call that Jesus gives us is not only a call to put God first, it's also a call to put others before us. Others before you. Think about this. On the screen, you see a scripture that Jesus spoke 
In Matthew chapter 7, you may have learned this and called it the golden rule. It's the golden way to care for other people. Jesus said that do to others what you would have them do to you. Now, if we read the whole, t- whole verse, it goes on and it says this. For this sums up the law and the prophets. I, I just want you to understand what Jesus was saying. Jesus saying, if you do to other people as you would have them do to you, if you would treat people the way you want to be treated, if you would love people the way you want to be loved, you're actually going to keep all of God's laws and follow all of the prophetic words recorded in the Old Testament. I mean, that, that's mind-boggling. But that's what he's saying. This is something Jesus repeated over and over. When he gave the great commandment and said there's another one like it, which was the golden rule, he said, you know what, both of these sum up all the law and all the prophets. If we truly live these verses, we can keep all that God requires us to do. Just think about that. If we love God and if we love others the way we want to be loved, we'll change the world. We'll change this world that we live in. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. And I want to ask you to imagine what would happen if you lived by the golden rule in all of your relationships. Now, some of you are saying, well, you know, it's not hard for me to love other people as myself. And I would agree that there are a lot of people in your life that you can love like you want to be loved. But I bet... There are some people in your life, more than you may want to admit, that are hard to love the way you want to be loved. In fact, when you see them, you may physically go the other way. We all have people like that. And Jesus didn't say, love the people who love you like you want to be loved the way you want to be loved. He said, love others the way you want to be loved without exception. What would happen if we loved people this way? What would happen in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our towns, at our places of work, in our schools, in our state, in our nation, in the world? If just the followers of Jesus would live this way, the way that Jesus tells us to live, it would change the world. How will you live that is different than the rest of the world? How will you live for Jesus? Now, I I know it's challenging, but Scripture tells us this is the way we're supposed to live. And Scripture actually gives us encouragement that when we live this way, we'll be blessed. Now, I think all of us understand that when we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the blessing of knowing that we are guaranteed eternal life because we believe in Jesus and follow him. But we're also blessed. That's the second point that I want to make. We're blessed. Over the next 10 weeks, we're going to unpack through the Beatitudes what it means to be blessed. But but all of the Beatitudes begin this way. They say, blessed are. And it talks about how followers of Jesus are blessed. 
We call those the Beatitudes, and we're going to be studying the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, basically just the Latin translation for the word blessed. So we're blessed. It's the, the blessed sayings. It follows in Jesus' teaching. Jesus said in the book of Acts, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So there's this idea that followers of Jesus Christ give themselves to God and it's in giving that they receive. It's in giving of themselves, their time, their talent, their treasure, their touch in the name of Jesus that ironically, they're blessed. They're blessed. Now, when you go and study the word blessed in the original language. It can mean blessed, but it can also be translated as happy. And there's a, a little bit of, of understanding of why we don't call it happy. So I'm going to return to the help of John Stott, that professor who wrote this. He said, there is no need to dismiss that, this interpretation of happy as completely false. For nobody knows better than our creator how we, can, how we may become truly human beings. He made us. He knows how we work best. And it's through obeying his own moral laws that we find and fulfill ourselves. And all Christians can testify from experience that there's a close connection between holiness and happiness. Nevertheless, he writes... It is seriously misleading to render the word blessed as happy. For happiness is a subjective state. Whereas Jesus is making an objective judgment about these people. He is declaring not what they may feel like, happy, but what God thinks of them and what on that account they are. They're blessed. God thinks that you're blessed as your follower, as a follower of, uh, of him. So as a follower of Jesus Christ, we need to understand we're blessed. And the idea of being blessed as followers of God is not new. If you go back to the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, we get a clear understanding of what this is like. Psalm 1, the first three verses say, say this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. And I want you to see something here. God's word says that a blessed person is the one who doesn't hang out with people who are going to drag you down into doing things that are offensive to God and against God's will. But the psalm goes on and says this, that, that you're going to be blessed when you make God and God's word a priority, when you read it and think about it and follow it. And the psalmist goes on to say that the blessed person then is going to be effective and fruitful with their life as they live it for God. That's blessed. Don't you want to be blessed? Now, let me say this. When you read that scripture, like when you read scriptures like Psalm 1, you know, we as humans tend to think of blessings in terms of power and of prestige and of prosperity of the financial type. Let me be blunt with this. That's the same way that the world thinks. 
That's the way the culture thinks. If you're following Jesus because you want to become healthy, wealthy, and wise, then you've got things upside down. Following Jesus is not a self-help philosophy. It's not a behavior modification program. Following Jesus is going against the way of our culture. It goes against the way the world thinks and the way the culture thinks. Following Jesus is countercultural. It's about putting God first. It's about putting others first and about understanding when you give yourself to God in that way, you will be blessed. And what will that blessing look like? Well, I'm not God, so I can't tell you specifically what that blessing is going to look like. But again, if you're looking for what you can get out of following God, out of following Jesus, your motivation is all wrong. It's about being in a relationship, a mutual relationship of love and care and faith and obedience. In my 35 years of following Jesus, I've heard testimonies of many different people who I know to be faithful followers of Jesus, and they've shared with me how following Jesus has blessed them. Some of them just describe their blessings as knowing that they're saved for eternity. Others of them will say they're blessed by knowing that that they've been faithful to Jesus, and that very knowledge is a blessing. And still others will tell me, yes, they've been blessed in ways that they never expected, sometimes materially, but they were blessed, all of them, by giving of themselves. And that was their motivation to give to God faithfully and obediently. Following Jesus. That's different. That's not what the world tells us to do. The world says, look out for me, look out for me. Make yourself Number one. But that's not how Jesus sees it. He says, follow me. Follow me and you'll be blessed. So let me ask you a question again. How will you be different for Jesus? The answer is both simple and challenging. You'll be blessed by following Jesus, by believing in him and following Jesus. Do you believe in him? Do you follow him? If you're not certain how to answer that question, we we can settle that right now. You can just simply tell Jesus that you do believe in him and that you want to follow him. That's what everybody who's a Christ follower has done at some point in their life. They say they believe in Jesus and they want to follow him. They accept that he died on the cross for the payment of their sins. So if you've never done that, I'm going to invite you this morning to just to pray a prayer where you tell him you believe in him and that you want to follow him. And you're going to receive the, the guarantee, the promise of eternal life but you're going to understand now that you've become a follower. And that's what he calls us to do. So I'm gonna ask everybody just to bow their heads and close their eyes. And and for those of you who have never told the Lord this before, I'm gonna give you the ability just to pray a silent prayer back to God. A silent prayer where you'll just tell him that you believe in him and you wanna follow him. So I'll give you it phrase by phrase and you can pray it to him. Dear God, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. I believe that Jesus paid the price for my sins. And now I want to follow him forever.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.